Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Podcast Public Service Announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Before we plunge back into the story of Nixon's surprising comeback and, even more surprising, if, in retrospect, inevitable, downfall through Watergate, it's worth pausing a moment to answer a question that may be bothering some of you. Why are we, and for that matter, Rick Perlstein, so very obsessed with this guy? Dr. Johnson said, if you're uh, tired of London, you're tired of life. I mean, if you're tired of Nixon, you're tired of life. He really is this Shakespearean character. It's basically this palpable manifest brilliance, these flashes of humanity and empathy that he could exhibit, bound up in this uh, absolutely kind of feral, dark, neurotic horror he has of himself and the world around him. Henry Kissinger said, can you imagine what this man could have been had he only been loved? And of course, he was loved. But, you know, it's just kind of like, who knows, you know, how we're going to sort out the strangeness of his upbringing with all these brothers of his falling to disease and super pious mother and this loutish kind of drunken father. And, you know, who knows how that works. But it's this ununited kind of ball of opposites that make up his character that will make him just endlessly fascinating and ultimately inscrutable. Yeah, what he said. In any case, if the 1968 election year hadn't been marred by the assassination of two major U.S. political figures within the span of two months, the most astonishing story of the year might have been Nixon's completely unexpected rise to the front of the Republican presidential field. In spite of that petulant, won't-have-Nixon-to-kick-around press conference, he licked his political wounds after his 1962 gubernatorial loss and smelled opportunity in the wake of the 64 Goldwater catastrophe and the upswell of conservatism in the Republican ranks. Not that Nixon was a conservative per se, he just knew that much of the energy behind the conservative movement was driven by resentment, and he was one of the all-time great artists when it came to channeling that emotion. As Pearlstein narrates, once he decided to run, Nixon spent his time wisely, demonstrating those once-in-a-generation political instincts, pretending that he had no ambitions beyond being the number one cheerleader for the Republican Party. He crisscrossed the country during the off-cycle election season of 66, seemingly stumping for any Republican who asked and doing his damnedest to get them elected, often against Democratic incumbents. But what contemporary observers didn't realize is that these shows of support were anything but random. Quoting Perlstein, He received over a thousand speaking invitations per month, the ones he chose, which were angulated with scientific precision. Nixon consistently showed up to support candidates running in traditionally Republican districts where Democrats had been elected during Johnson's enormous wave election in 64, when he creamed Goldwater by more than 20 percent. 
Now that Nixon saw the stirrings of a conservative backlash as the country's white middle class reacted with confusion and horror to the riots engendered in the wake of sweeping civil rights legislation passed only a couple of years before, he targeted challengers who were most likely to win whether Nixon showed up to support them or not, as those districts reverted to standard Republican-supporting form. Thus, Nixon was able to get some of the credit for each and every inevitable victory, emerging as a powerful force in the party. Or, to quote Perlstein's memorable phrase, He could reap credit for making water flow downhill. Incredibly clever? Certainly. But that was just brilliant politics. Nothing actually distasteful. Lust for the big prize also made Nixon choose some far less forgivable tactics to turn the tide in his favor, especially when it came to the horrific, unwinnable war in Southeast Asia that America just kept getting more and more bogged down in. Our involvement in Vietnam was, of course, not Nixon's fault. Johnson certainly bears most of the blame for drastically increasing our commitment there, especially given his manipulation of the honest-to-God false flag incident in the Gulf of Tonkin. See our false flag episode for more details. But Nixon, smelling Johnson's political blood in the water as the war became ever less popular and more politically divisive, engaged in some truly unforgivable actions to ensure the president's wounds would become mortal. Much of the Johnson-Vietnam skullduggery was a sort of clever verbal jujitsu, as Perlstein chronicles. Ostensibly, Nixon gave interviews supporting the president's actions relating to the war while actually undercutting him at every rhetorical turn. He also claimed to have a secret plan that would allow him alone to win the peace in Vietnam. Who does that remind us of? I alone can fix it. I will restore law and order to our country. Seems familiar. Hmm. I'm sure it'll come to us eventually. But the most dastardly thing he did, long rumored but only confirmed by a researcher in the Nixon Library in 2017, was reach out to the South Vietnamese negotiators in the run-up to the election, deliberately spiking Johnson's peace negotiations by encouraging the South not to reach an accord with their North Vietnamese enemies until Nixon could win the election promising his new administration would negotiate a better peace. Hey, Jesuit. Dana? Isn't interfering in top-level negotiations between the U.S. and foreign powers during wartime considered treason? Yes. Yes, it is. But only if you get caught, apparently. Or if it doesn't work. But it did work. So he's elected in 68, winning narrowly in a plurality with Democrat Hubert Humphrey and third-party racist George Wallace. We don't have time to go into all the many highs and lows that attended Nixon's first term in office, but did want to take just a moment to let Rick walk us through exactly how unique a period of American life the Nixon years would represent. Please note that we take the Nixon years to include the stunted two-and-a-half-year Ford presidency. August 74 through January of 77. That would have been the final two years of Nixon's term had he not resigned, and which was largely taken up with dealing with the damage that Ford's predecessor had done to America its stature, its respect for leaders and institutions, and even its self-image. By the way, Ford definitely didn't help that situation when, a month into his presidency, he elected to pardon Nixon for his many crimes, with no trial or even accounting of those misdeeds, much to the shock and anger of the American people. But 
we're getting ahead of ourselves. Rick, talk to us about exactly how unsettling it was to be an American between 1968 and 1976. I have a friend who, who tells me, like, you know, basically it was really fun being a student when Richard Nixon was president because you never had to take final exams because the schools were always going on a strike, you know, right in, right in spring, you know, to really set up what it was like to live in the United States in the late 1960s to late 1970s, you have to comprehend that when there was a worldwide depression, <laughs> you know, in the early 1930s, a lot of the world fell to fascism, but America picked itself up and built the world's greatest army and defeated fascism. And the world's first mass middle class resulted from all this. You know, I like to say that in the years between 1945 and 1972, when America was just the apex of the world economy, you, you could, you know, kind of grow up having an outhouse and end up having a vacation house without even having a college degree. You know, you just kind of show up at the factory gate and, you know, working hard and playing by the rules. But while this is all going on, the whole system by the late 1960s is melting down because America enters into this war that spends down all this extraordinary store of moral capital it builds by defeating fascism and creating the world's first mass middle class. America loses its first war. You have a president who was caught on tape talking like a mafia don. Jill Wine Banks, who was uh, one of the Watergate prosecutors and just wrote her memoir of that time, said that the FBI employees, the women who were hired to transcribe the White House tapes, would just leave work every day sobbing because they couldn't believe what they were hearing. That was the kind of disillusionment they were dealing with, right? You had a nation that hadn't had a trade deficit since 1888, going from controlling like a third of the world's economy to something like half that by 1980. It's an extraordinary backdrop to all these cultural changes and violence and assassinations and the sort of things you can see if you, you know, watch any documentary about the 1960s and the 1970s. One of the things that's really important to understand about all this is on a kind of descriptive level, you have people who grew up being taught that America had it all figured out, you know, united and at peace with itself. All ideological conflicts have been put in the past and then kind of seeing all this unfold in front of their eyes. But you can also interpret it as the fact that all these conflicts that had always been present in American life and never really went away returned with a vengeance. You know, what spends on a relationship when you pretend that the day-to-day -day stresses kind of aren't there and they kind of burst forth in screaming matches, right? That's what it looks like in the 1970s. As Rick notes, this was an almost unprecedented era of dislocation in modern America. Yes, we're even including 2020 in that statement. But to get a better handle on just how weird it was to be an American waking up to life on an average day in Nixon land, we're going to quote the book, which lists a sampling of the weirdness that all happened around the beginning of 1971. In New York, vigilante shouting, never again, the slogan of the Jewish Defense League, firebombed the office of a talent booker who handled Soviet acts. One secretary died. A cab driver in Queens rammed 50 welfare rights picketers calling for affordable daycare. I have a wife and four kids to support, he cried before revving the accelerator. The Newark Boys Chorus School, 80% of whose students were black, moved into a three-story Georgian mansion in an upper-middle-class neighborhood. A homemade firebomb was tossed through a side window in September, doing no damage. A second attempt, over Thanksgiving, took out the entire top floor. Defiling school buses was a nationwide trend. Michigan was the vanguard. One hot evening just before the start of the school year, 
Two terrorists slipped inside a depot and lit dynamite atop the fuel tanks of six school buses. Thousands of townspeople rallied to the terrorists' support, just as they used to do down south after lynchings. Pontiac is the new south, a state legislator said. I'm frankly ashamed to say right now that I am a citizen of this city. In Washington, D.C., feminist T. Grace Atkinson, speaking at Catholic University, speculated over whether the Blessed Virgin Mary had been knocked up. Enraged, William F. Buckley's sister Patricia raced onto the stage and started assaulting her. In New Mexico, in the rugged town of Riodoso, the set the previous year for the John Wayne picture Chisholm, barefoot Nancy Crow Tapper and bearded Paul Edward Green, both of suburban Wheaton, Maryland, were a young couple living together without benefit of clergy. The town was well sick of hippies. Paul was arrested for falling afoul of Riodoso's rarely enforced 125-year-old lewd cohabitation law. The statutory punishment for a first offense was supposed to be a verbal warning. The judge, who displayed a sign on his office door reading, Judge Pritchett, the law west of the Rio Riodoso, gave him 30 days instead. Paul didn't take his confinement particularly seriously. When given a chance to call a lawyer, he allegedly ambled away from the jailhouse. The second of two warning shots caught him in the back of the head. They said the hippie was running, yet Green had recently been injured and could barely walk. Charges were never pressed against the officer. This was only the latest in an epidemic of hippie lynchings in New Mexico. The Federal Commissioner of Public Services reported 771 bomb threats in federal buildings in 1971 and 35 explosions. In January, police in New York, San Francisco, and Chicago defused bombs set in eight banks sent by a group calling itself the Movement for America. Mayor Daley held a press conference announcing the arrest of two college students, 19 and 18 years old, for conspiracy to poison Chicago's drinking water with a typhoid microorganism found in their house. Their plan had been to inoculate members of their group, which they called RISE, in order to survive and form a master race. That's a lot for mid-century middle America to process. The point being, by the time the 1972 election rolled around, much of the public was willing to stick with anyone who promised he could stem the tide of disorder that seemed to threaten all that these middle Americans held dear. As noted before, Richard Nixon had remarkable political instincts, and they told him there was a really large number of middle class, read, white, people who just wanted everything to go back to normal. Normal being defined as white people running everything and minorities and women staying in their place. And while many of these folks were hollering at the top of their lungs and others were blowing up school buses, most of them were quiet. But there were really a lot of them. Like a whole lot. Somebody should come up with a catchy name for this large group. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. Anyway, these people were all solidly, if silently, behind Nixon, and he was also greatly helped by the fact that the Democratic field was in a state of almost complete disarray. Much of this was self-inflicted due to a series of events including questionable rule changes for the primaries in the wake of the disastrous riot-spawning conditions attending the Democratic Convention in 1968 in Chicago. But, as Rick makes very clear, the confusion and backstabbing that defined the Democratic primaries in 72 was also, thanks at least in part, to some serious skullduggery by Nixon partisans, which, by a commodious vicus of recirculation, brings us back to Watergate and environs. I'm almost positive you used that reference wrong. Leave me my Joyce illusions, please. See, the Nixon administration was, in a reflection of the pugilistic, resentful, conspiratorial, political, win-at-all-costs mentality of the man at the top, staffed extensively by people who saw dirty tricks as part and parcel of the way presidential politics was done. 
Many of these guys emerged from the notoriously bare-knuckle world of the college Republicans, an organization that, as Pearlstein ably chronicles, was responsible for fostering the careers of many of the more notorious operatives for the Nixon committee to re-elect the president. Which, yes, spells out the acronym CREEP, as literally everyone who's ever studied the subject has learned with incredulity. It would be the most ironic name of any group in this political conspiracy series, except, of course, that we already dealt with the anti-Catholic dumbfucks who christened themselves know-nothing. Indeed. The truly excellent All the President's Men film, based on the book of the same name by legendary Watergate reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, and starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman in all their mid-70s feathered-haired glory, spends some time covering the visit that real-life Bernstein made to the college Republican alum who recruited others into the job of pulling dirty tricks on the Democrats throughout the primary. The objective? Ensuring that chaos reigned, and thereby making Nixon look more statesmanlike by comparison. The actor portraying this real-life figure, lawyer Donald Segretti, lays out the whole scheme here after Hoffman's Bernstein flies to his California home to get to the bottom of all this. Horrendous. And what kind of stuff do you guys do then? Nickel and dime stuff. Uh, stuff. Stuff with a little wit attached to it. I mean, when you sent out on the musky stationery that Senator Hubert Humphrey was going out with call girls. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if anything, it helped the man's image. <laughs> what, was the, what was the one on Muskie Stationery that you sent out that said that Scoop Jackson was having a bastard child? So sometimes it got up to a quarter, off the record. I think, I think one of the most interesting ones was the Canuck letter. What about it? Come on. Will you claim that Muskie slurred the Canadian? No, I didn't write that. Do you know who did? Carl, when you guys print it in the papers, then I'll know. Smart guy, Don. You know, dumb. I'm a lawyer, Carl. I'm a lawyer. I'm a good lawyer. And I'll probably wind up going to jail and being disbarred. And uh, I don't know we what I did that was so bad. Who else was there? It was me, <clears throat> Dwight, Ziegler, the whole USC mafia. And that's when you got involved, you mean, in the student elections and we started to try to get your man in, so you stuffed ballot boxes and... <laughs> and what was that term you guys used for screwing up the opposition? Rat fucking. That's right. And you were just doing the same kind of stuff when you were out campaigning for President Nixon? <laughs> Let me tell you something, we did a lot worse things in college. <laughs> Two points. First, yes, they actually used the term rat-fucking to refer to the dirty tricks they were pulling on the Democrats. And second, in addition to a number of less famous political operatives, two of the most active college Republican rat-fuckers at the time were eventual George W. Bush strategist Karl Rove and recent convicted yet pardoned Trump-supporting felon Roger Stone, who literally has a tattoo of Nixon's face on his back. Sexy. Now, the obvious question to ask here is, why? Why did Nixon go to the trouble of building up an army of rat fuckers and command or allow them to do all of this rat fucking? Especially when he was a virtual lock for re-election given the above-mentioned political advantages leading up to 72. Well, probably the single biggest precipitating event leading to all of this rat fucking. You're just going to keep finding excuses to overuse that term, aren't you? Obvi. Anyway, what apparently drove Nixon into the deep end was the release in 1971 of the so-called Pentagon Papers, a top-secret report commissioned by the Pentagon to analyze the history and outlook for the Vietnam War. 
The report had concluded, in essence, that the war was, as everyone seemed already to know, a complete catastrophe, but also revealed what most people didn't know, that the U.S. was secretly and in violation of international law, bombing Cambodia and Laos, seeking to hit North Vietnamese forces who had crossed these borders. The report was leaked by a defense analyst named Daniel Ellsberg, who was prosecuted on espionage charges. But the incident also kicked the war between the Nixon administration, which again had never cared for the press. Recall that kick Nixon around press conference. And all of the nation's major newspapers, which one after the other took up the mantle of publishing sections of the papers as each was in turn sued by the administration and ordered to cease publication by the courts. Harkening back to Nixon's lifelong grudges, it's obvious how this set of events would play out in the man's twisted psyche. As noted in a gripping multi-part four-and-a-half-hour Watergate documentary that first aired in 2018. And which Jesuit somehow had no luck getting anyone in his house to watch with him. No accounting for taste, unicorn. Anyway, this bit of narration sums the situation up nicely. The Pentagon Papers had everything to infuriate Nixon. They were published a year before Nixon faced re-election, and they were the result of an anti-war, Harvard-educated, East Coast Jew leaking secrets to the New York Times and the Washington Post. And then the Supreme Court let them get away with it. The United States Supreme Court today ruled against the government and gave the New York Times and the Washington Post the right to resume publishing the secret Pentagon study on United States involvement in the war in Vietnam. Luckily, Nixon didn't take any of this personally and simply turned to other important matters of governance with no hard feelings or malice toward those he perceived as having embarrassed and weakened his presidency. Psych! Pearlstein describes how, on the night of the 1972 election, which he won by nearly as much of a landslide as Johnson had in 1964, Nixon still couldn't enjoy his victory. In his heart of hearts, he really thinks that people who really run the society are out to get people like him. You see this kind of fascinatingly, you know, uh, on the Nixon tapes, the night he wins the presidential election in 1972. You would think that he's thrilled. You would think that this is like the greatest accomplishment of his life. He's won 49 states. He's won 60 percent of the popular vote. And you listen to him talking on the phone and he's drunk and he's miserable. And he thinks that people are still out to get him. He still doesn't have enough power. His power is still provisional because, again, this conspiracy theory trope, the real power is kind of unseen, hidden hands that he believes are burrowed within the federal bureaucracy. He is absolutely obsessed that the federal bureaucracy, these kind of civil servants, they're filled with Kennedy loyalists. And he's asking who has pictures of John F. Kennedy still on their wall. Famously, he's having his aide, Fred Malik, count how many Jews are at the Department of Labor Statistics, right? It's very Trumpian, this idea that the unelected bureaucrats are this kind of hidden deep state out to get him. You know, it just absolutely saturates his political thinking. Given this level of resentment and in the wake of the Pentagon Papers, and then all the way through the end of his self-doomed presidency, Nixon opted for all-out war, not only through Segretti's ratfuckers, but also through a new clandestine White House group called the Special Investigations Unit. 
but who quickly renamed themselves the Plumbers. Because they fix leaks. Get it? Makes his joke seem better by comparison, doesn't it? Exactly. Though, as you might expect for the Nixon White House, the group's mandate ended up covering far more than just identifying and stopping leaks to the press from administration insiders. Led by plumbers E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, the definition of plugging leaks from the White House expanded rather quickly and dramatically to encompass, for example, breaking into the office of the psychiatrist who treated Daniel Ellsberg. That's the Pentagon Papers leaker, recall. Infuriated by leaks to the media, Nixon orders Ehrlichman to create a secret White House organization to identify leakers and attack them, starting with Daniel Ellsberg. Nixon calls this team that he sets up a special investigations unit. They call themselves the plumbers. Break in, plant bugs, rifle files, infiltrate. Gordon Liddy, as part of the plumbers unit, is a screwball. He's a nutcase. He's a bumbler. He's a romantic. He is somebody who thought he was James Bond. He'd come up with a plan to break in Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office. Liddy and these Cuban-Americans, he's been able to arrange to help him through another White House aide, Howard Hunt. But they broke in. They find nothing in the files. They trash the place. They realize they got to get Liddy and Hunt out of the White House. And in classic Washington bureaucratic fashion, they're promoted to be somebody else's problem. And they're sent over to the committee to reelect the president to creep. We would be remiss if we didn't note here that the Ellsberg psychiatrist break-in, as well as the later and more famous Watergate DNC break-ins, were actually among the tamest things suggested by Liddy, first as a plumber and then as an operative for creep. He's a man whose life story is so bizarre, it's actually worthy of a show in and of itself, but we'll limit ourselves to five quick, amazing but true facts that describe how weird this still-living human being is. One. Liddy has mentioned in numerous interviews, and apparently unapologetically, that as a frail, sickly boy born in 1930, his first hero was Adolf Hitler. Yes, you heard that correctly. In fact, let's quote the man from a 2004 interview about listening to Der Fuhrer on the radio in his youth. It made me feel a strength inside I had never known before. Hitler's sheer animal confidence and power of will entranced me. He sent an electric current through my body. Please don't make me read any more Hitler mash notes. No promises. Two. Liddy's party trick was holding his hand over an open flame until he was badly burned. This story first surfaced when related by Woodward's secret source, Deep Throat. Here's the quote from the book, All the President's Men. I was at a party once and uh, Liddy put his hand over a candle and he kept it there. He kept it right in the flame until his flesh was burned. Somebody said, what's the trick? And Liddy said, the trick is not minding. Three. Oh, yeah, there's more. John Dean, the White House counsel and Watergate conspirator, who we'll discuss much more in a few minutes, recalls attending a meeting with the attorney general, John Mitchell, at which Liddy laid out some of his more unorthodox plans. More unorthodox than breaking into a psychiatrist's office and then the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee? Yeah. Ruder calls me, would I come over to the meeting where Liddy presents his intelligence plans? And it's one of the more amazing meetings I was ever in in government. Liddy started talking about kidnapping anti-war leaders. He said, I have some men who will take these people off the street, take them below the Mexican border, drug them, and put them out of commission during the campaign. 
Dean didn't mention there that Liddy also had a plan to lure Democrats to a houseboat in Miami, then use prostitutes to seduce them into compromising positions, which of course Liddy's creeps would photograph for blackmail purposes. To his credit, Mitchell rejected this, but remember, all of these plans were given a fair hearing in the office of the goddamned Attorney General of the United States. Four? That's still not Liddy's craziest plan. He and Hunt admitted to plotting the assassination of Jack Anderson, a newspaper columnist whom Nixon hated. Their ideas recalled the insane CIA plots for Castro's murder back in the 60s. I.e., they literally suggested smearing LSD on the man's steering wheel so he would crash his car. Five. Last but not least, Dean reported that, in the wake of the Watergate burglar's arrest, Liddy volunteered to have himself assassinated, if necessary, for the good of the president and the administration. Holy shit. Yes. But back to the main story. After the psychiatrist's office break-in yielded nothing usable for discrediting Ellsberg, Liddy and Hunt put together a team to enact one of the less insane versions of Liddy's plans, approved by Mitchell, who was still, we must note, acting both as Attorney General of the U.S. and as the head of the creeps. This led to two break-ins of the Democratic National Committee offices in the Watergate Hotel in Washington. The first was a total failure, and on the second, they got caught. The whole thing was an amazing cock-up. A former CIA electronics expert, James McCord, was supposed to grease the skids for the burglars by taping all the doors in the stairwells on all floors of the building to keep them from locking. However, instead of taping them vertically, so you couldn't see the tape, he taped them horizontally, leading a security guard to notice, and he called the cops, who eventually busted the burglars in flagrante. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is housed in the fashionable Watergate complex. The break-in apparently planned well in advance. Police confiscated extensive photographic and electronic eavesdropping gear, as well as several thousand dollars in consecutively numbered bills. Each had several aliases. Four said they were from Miami. The fifth said he lived in the metropolitan Washington area. Three were originally from Cuba. Now, this whole operation was supposed to be kept quiet even after the arrest, because if they were caught, the burglars were presumed to refuse to talk, and then they would be sentenced to minor punishment, slaps on the wrist. But the judge wouldn't play ball, and when none of them would provide any testimony, he threatened all of them with serious jail time. So first McCord and then the other burglars started to talk. In addition to Liddy and Hunt, they fingered Jeb Magruder, former Creep Deputy Director, and John Dean, White House Counsel, as being behind the break-in. Dean turned out to be the linchpin of all the subsequent events. He was assigned to handle the cover-up within the White House, and so therefore he was the connecting tissue between the plumbers and those in the executive branch who were organizing the whole thing. Once Dean flipped, he delivered a barn burner of a testimony to the Congressional Committee investigating the break-in, which was highlighted by recounting a conversation in which he claimed Nixon told him they could acquire up to a million dollars to cover expenses for the Watergate burglars plus Liddy and Hunt over the next four years. Which doesn't sound great in terms of Nixon's having no knowledge of the cover-up, which was the official White House stance. By the way, this was hardly the only astonishing revelation from Dean's testimony. When asked if he had anything else of relevance to testify to, Dean also revealed that Nixon had what came to be called an enemies list of perceived opponents of the administration whom they wanted to, and I quote, screw, using among other tactics, IRS audits. I'm talking about a literal printed list, which he provided. Here's a hilarious moment where CBS correspondent and broadcasting legend, the late Daniel Shore, reading from the list, finds a familiar name on it. Executive at Common Cause, 
And it says, a scandal would be most helpful here as a designation under him. Daniel Shaw of the Columbia Broadcasting System in Washington. The note here is, a real media enemy. Apparently you're not on the list, Frank. Well, that's all right. Nixon land is weird, right? Think how paranoid and conspiracy-minded the most powerful man in the world would have to be to put together a list like this and plot these petty revenges. Under pressure in 1973, with Dean's testimony the hottest thing on TV, how well did this little, tiny, relatively easy-to-cover-up conspiracy involving maybe a dozen or so people hold together? Not particularly well, honestly. By this point, Kissinger had secretly taped 15,000 phone calls. He later destroyed the tapes. Others were secretly taping each other, planting rumors, hiring criminal lawyers, and looking for new jobs. Today, in one of the most difficult decisions of my presidency, I accepted the resignations of two of my closest associates in the White House, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman. That same day, Nixon also fired John Dean, Attorney General Richard Kleindienst, and FBI Director L. Patrick Gray, replacing all of them with people untainted by Watergate. But fortunately, once Dean had finished testifying and after Nixon had lost his beloved Haldeman and Ehrlichman, it was clear the worst was over. I mean, it's not as if some no-name functionary would, under oath, reveal that Nixon had tied his own political noose or something. A Watergate committee investigator questioned an obscure White House official, Alexander Butterfield. Butterfield's answers were a huge surprise, and they suddenly revealed Nixon's biggest secret, something nobody had known, not Nixon's own staff, not Woodward and Bernstein, not the FBI, not the special prosecutor. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. As far as you know, did Mr. Ehrlichman or Mr. Dean know about the existence or the presence of those devices? That would be very unlikely. My guess is that they definitely did not know. One last question. If one were, therefore, to reconstruct the conversations at any particular date, what would be the best way to reconstruct those conversations, Mr. Butterfield? Well, in the obvious manner, Mr. Dash, to obtain the tape and play it. Yeah, Nixon had taped himself, and even his own lawyer didn't know about it because Nixon lied to that lawyer's face about having any recordings. Ironically, of course, this conversation where Nixon insisted he didn't have tapes was taped. Okay, so the tapes don't look great. But now, of course, Nixon could just use this revelation to prove his innocence by releasing the tape of the conversation where Dean had claimed Nixon talked about how easy it would be to get a million dollars in hush money. When it turned out that Nixon said no such thing in that conversation, Dean would be disgraced and the whole thing would be over. I get the feeling that Nixon did not want to release these supposedly innocent tapes. He did not. But he had great reasons. Executive privilege, thinking of future presidents' need for candid advice in the Oval Office, etc. Nothing to do with saving his own bacon. No. 
Heaven forfend! And by the way, while all of this was going on, there was also a scramble to get a new vice president in place because Nixon's attack dog VP, Spiro Agnew, was under a completely unrelated investigation for taking bribes. Which he 100% was guilty of. And thus, the vice president was forced to resign in October of 73, even as the president was fighting for his political life. Which is how we got the unique situation where Gerald Ford, August 9th, 1974, became the only man to serve as president who had never even been elected to the Veep role. Once the tapes became public knowledge, it kind of all became inevitable. The grand jury demanded the tapes, Nixon refused, lost a court case, lost on appeal, eventually fired not only special prosecutor Archibald Cox, but also both the attorney general, Elliot Richardson, and his deputy, William Ruckelshaus. Because both of those gents had refused to fire Cox in the first place. And finally, in the wake of a national uproar over these authoritarian tactics, he handed over the tapes. And once we actually heard the million-dollar tape, it matched almost word-for-word word what Dean had testified. I would say these people are going to cost a million dollars over the next uh, few years. Okay. You want the money, but you need the money. I mean, uh, you can get it. Well, I think that's where my Plus, we got to hear in another conversation Haldeman and Nixon discussing how they could use the CIA to lean on the FBI to make the investigation go away for the good of the country. Or, as it came to be known, the smoking gun tape. Finally, Nixon faced reality and resigned before he could be impeached. Ford became president, then pardoned his predecessor, so there was never even really an accounting of what had actually happened. But why, at long last, are we even talking about this? Uh, because you love Rick Perlstein's books and you're obsessed with Nixon. You already told him that. That statement is accurate, but incomplete. No, we're talking about this at length because this, my friends, listeners, and straniacs, is what a real honest-to-God political conspiracy looks like once it starts unraveling. Stupid mistakes, infighting, betrayals, cover-ups, double-dealing, petty squabbles, a scramble for illicit cash, a slow drip of revelations that brings the whole thing crashing down. This, among many other reasons, is why we maintain, in the face of an endless stream of conspiracists screaming their accusations into the void, that everything from 9-11 to the moon landing to the various 60s assassination conspiracies, they're all implausible on their faces, because none of them looks remotely like Watergate. Where's the hush money? Where's the turncoat-turned-popular hero like John Dean? Where are the reporters who can make their lifelong reputations off of these stories? I mean, there was plenty of threatening and intimidation coming out of the Nixon White House against the Watergate investigators. Where are the threats from the same band of goons against the supposedly equally correct moon landing truthers? I mean, the landings were taking place during the Nixon presidency. Why hasn't anyone reported that he was ordered to drop his investigations into NASA's big lie by Haldeman or Ehrlichman? Who was threatened with even so much as a tax audit for his work exposing the moon hoax? Where's Deep Crater? The answer, of course, is he doesn't exist. Because there was no moon conspiracy, so nobody could break a huge story. No one could fuel his petty bureaucratic grievances by blabbing to reporters as a confidential source. Because unlike Watergate, this shit isn't true. 
So we've come to the end of our Nixon talk, but not quite to the end of our interview topics with Rick P. We still have to deal with the master fabulist who brought the conservative movement mainstream, a man who never met a conspiracy theory he didn't like, so long as it aligned with his pre-existing narrative of good guys and bad guys. And that man, Ronald Reagan, ended up with one big, fat, real-life conspiracy that for a moment threatened to take down his own administration. We're kidding, of course. Oh, we're going to do a short episode wrapping up with Reagan, but you didn't think we were going to miss the opportunity to put out an election. Quick hit. Did you? When the entire 2020 race is completely riven with conspiracy lunacy? Unlikely. And yes, that means we're doing QAnon again. Those motherfuckers. Back with you soon. Until then, theme music, play us out.
It made me feel a strength inside I had never known before. Hitler's sheer animal confidence and power of will entranced me. He sent an electric current through my body. Ugh. Ugh. I'm gonna have a glass of wine. That was fucking gross.